Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Scott Wright. Scott, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's been great to uh, get to know you a little bit off air, and um, I'm really excited about this conversation. So uh, just to start us off, would you please tell us a a little bit about yourself, your life, your marriage, your ministry, and what are you working on ministry-wise these days? Sure. Thanks for asking. I am president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. I also teach Old Testament there. But it was, a like like many of your listeners, it's a long, circuitous route that got me to where I am today. Um, I was raised in a Christian family. It was a military family, which meant that we moved around about every two or three years of my life. I went to four high schools. We were all over the place. And as a result of that, I don't have the benefit of being able to claim a hometown, but I do have a strong family bond. <laughs> so our family was pretty tight, and the faith, Christian faith, was a big part of that. Doesn't mean I didn't walk away from it at times, particularly in high school, but the Lord was always quick to draw me back to Him. It was not long after college. I was doing public relations down in Washington, D.C., and I was coming home at night and reading people like John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, and one of my friends said, Said, hey, you know, that's that's not really normal. Uh, you might want to think about pursuing studies uh, in theology. And I talked to my pastor here, and he said, well, why don't you try taking a class at the local seminary? And so I did and just realized that I, I loved it. I loved the work that I was doing. I felt called to be a pastor or a teacher of God's Word. And so I went to seminary down at um, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And while I was there, I really got a vision for teaching the Word of God out of the Old Testament, particularly looking at how, for me, the, the Bible is not not only an expression of who God is in sort of a sort of an ideational or sort of a knowledge sense, you know, the, the idea that we can learn things about God from the Bible, but that actually he reveals himself in a compelling, art, artful, beautiful way. And, and, and being attuned to some of those literary devices and the imagery and just the wonderful artfulness of Scripture. And so I, I decided to go on and do my doctoral work in that area. I was reading the Bible as not only a well of theology, but also a compelling, artful book. And that got me into Old Testament studies. I did my degree in Semitic and Egyptian language and literature, at which point most people usually glaze over when I'm talking to them. Um, but, you know, it was really that. It was studying God's Word in light of other ancient literature and seeing how it, it really, um, it's really beautiful. And it's compelling in a way that we sometimes miss when we're just looking for the theology. But along that whole journey, I've been accompanied by my wife, Jennifer. Uh, we met in college and got married back in 2000, and we now have five wonderful daughters. Uh, yes, five. Yes, daughters, um, who uh, we enjoy daily. And they're usually, if you actually read the book, The Wholeness Imperative that we're going to talk about, you'll hear some stories about them. My theology has been more formed by them than probably any other Bible teacher uh, out there today. So mm. that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I, I grew up in a military family, too. My, my 
dad was a retired lieutenant colonel and uh, or is a retired lieutenant colonel and my, my grandfather served on general eisenhower's staff um during world war Two, and my uncle was a chief petty officer and um yeah we can't even talk about that on on recorded air so <laughs> yeah You've got, the, uh, you've got the pedigree. And you also have that experience of when someone asks you where you're from, saying, well, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we can't even talk about what my wife does. So. Right. I hear yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's always an awkward conversation. I'm like, I'm not withholding from you. I, I, I'm just not allowed to tell you. <laughs> I know. My, my dad went through uh, counterterrorism got out of the Navy, and so he worked down the road from where I am now, the National Counterterrorism Center, and it was the same way. He'd come home every day, and he'd say, hey, what did you do? And he'd say, just don't even ask. I can't tell you. <laughs> and you don't want to know. Yeah. So. Right. Well, hey, we're going to talk about your book today. You, you mentioned it, The Wholeness Imperative, How Christ Unifies Our Desires, Identity, and Impact in the World. Uh, can you tell us why you wrote it, Scott, and how you hope it's received or, or is being received? Um, I tend, I typically write books about things that I'm myself interested in. Um, and so this is a topic, particularly if you look over the last five to 10 years, but you could count the whole of Christian history. There's been this dialogue that we as Christians have about what is, what's the balance between God's grace in our lives and Jesus Christ and the call to be holy or righteous and to pursue God and to enjoy him forever, as the Westminster says. And I was just interested in this discussion from the point of view of the Old Testament. And so that's part of what went into writing the book. And then secondarily, I was putting together a series of sermons that I was going to preach actually in the chapel down at a seminary where I was working. And I was going to do it on the creeds, kind of like great creeds or ideas in scripture that keep coming up as if the members, you know, the, the, the writers and the audience of scripture keep remembering right back to uh, this idea like repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand or love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength from Deuteronomy 6 and I started with Deuteronomy 6 and I never really got past that creed I mean that's what this book is based on it's called the wholeness imperative and it's really reflecting on the theology that we find in Deuteronomy 6 which um, for Jesus is the, the greatest commandment. And interestingly, no one debates him or debates his audience when that idea is given expression. Everybody agrees this is it. This is kind of the culmination, the beating heart of the Mosaic law. And yet Jesus very clearly says, and I'm not here to replace that. That's still the imperative for you today. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Though I kind of translate that all of yourself, and we can talk about why that is if we want. And with all of your strength, but of course that doesn't just mean you know your muscles or your sort of cognitive wattage or something like that. It really does mean your effect in the world, and I think that would include your property, your social capital. We call it capital typically, intellectual capital, relational capital. How are you loving God with all of those things? There's this kind of emanating sense to that passage. It starts in the core, the inner person, the heart. It kind of emanates out to the person, the self and then out into the world around them. And if you if you actually continue reading in chapter 6, this is basically what Moses says. He says, therefore, write these words on your heart, memorize them, know them, back and forth, okay? 
but also put them on you, put them on your hands, put them on your frontlets so that as you're looking out at the world, your, your outlook is shaped by the Word of God. And then write them on your gates, write them on your doors, tell them to your children, talk about them when you're on the way doing business. In other words, there's this emanating centrifugal force to God's kingdom. It doesn't just stay within our hearts. It's not just a personal thing. It's supposed to emanate out into the world. And once you kind of get attuned to that language and realize that this is Deuteronomy 6 language, um, it's not just Bible language or religious language, you start to see it pop up all over the Bible. You know, when David sends out Solomon and, and basically blesses him for the rain, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of yourself, saying basically, Love God with all that you are. And, and Solomon even starts in that direction, but then things start to fall off when his heart is divided by the other gods. He's no longer wholehearted. He's now fragmented, and that reality has a dire effect for the rest of the kingdom. But I would argue that this is a thread. It's kind of a golden braid that's woven up through all of redemption, redemptive history. And we can see not only the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others reflecting on it, but we see Jesus himself reflecting on it. And Paul even restating it now in light of Jesus Christ. When he says things like, we have one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, he's, re he's restating Deuteronomy 6 to account for the revelation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I just thought it was a really fascinating book, especially with your Old Testament background, um, which I, I find very interesting. Thanks. So thank you for, thank you for writing it. Uh, why is, uh, Dr. Herman Bavnik's contrast between being and becoming cut through so much confusion about the Christian identity in life? Yeah. So I mean, Herman Bavnik, first of all, is eminently fruitful every time you read him. Um, this is coming from a, an article, actually, that he wrote, and he talks about how all worldviews and all religions have an emphasis on either the being or the becoming. In other words, is it something that we're always striving for? You know, imagine the Buddhist who's striving to attain understanding and insight and ultimately nirvana, or is it something we already have? And you can imagine however you want some some religion in which even some versions of Christianity where we have it all already there's nothing more to long for just enjoy what you have and he emphasizes you know, that, that that the reformed faith which is the tradition that I come from uh, reformed Protestantism really does put a high value on the being in other words the change the thing that's already happened in Christ and yet he recognizes though that there is this large element of also becoming you, know, you can see this in the way that Paul talks about how Christians ought to live. He says, you, know, you are saints, so therefore go act like saints. You know, remember even in the letter to the Corinthians where he's talking to this you know, incredibly corrupt, as far as we can tell from the letters, incredibly corrupt congregation, he calls them all saints. He says, now go live like saints. You are in Jesus, in Christus, the language he uses, so go live like you're in Christ. You're, you are saved, now go live like you're saved. You are son of God, heirs to the kingdom, now go live like you are heirs to the kingdom. So there's this element in Christian, and I would say biblical theology, that really emphasizes both, you have this identity, it's yours. Now go live into that identity. Repent towards that identity. Long and yearn for it. Don't just sit and rest. You also yearn, not because your salvation is uh, you know, based on your learning, your yearning, but rather it is an outpouring of salvation. And I think we see that when Moses is talking to Israelites who have already come out of Egypt. They've been given the land. And he says, God is whole. God is one. 
He's your God. He's bound to you in covenant. Now go live in like manner. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. Yearn towards that God who has saved you. And I think that's what we're called to do as well as those who are in Christ. Yeah, I love how you're talking about our identity in Christ. Because I, I, to me, I don't see a lot of people talking about it that way, unfortunately. Yeah. We, need to, we need to go back to talking about that, you know, for the reasons that you just talked about. You're repenting back towards our identity in Christ and those kind of things. Well, I think, you know, it's when you talk about legalism versus... I don't know what you want to call the other side, antinomianism or something like that, licentionism or something. I think what we often miss is this idea of union with Christ. Hmm. And having been identified with him through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the inheritance, right? It's, it's been given to us. It's been fundamentally handed to us. We even get to enjoy the fruit of it now in part. So, you know, Paul will say things like, if you are in Christ, right? Behold, you're new creation. So there, there's a little embassy of the new heavens and new earth that's been established in your heart, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So now, now that you've enjoyed that, live, live towards it and long towards it. You know? And and you get both of those in that idea, the, the idea of identity. And I think it's a hugely important doctrine that we uh, we don't want to ignore. Right. Exactly. Uh, why is it important that we understand that biblical simplicity springs up from the heart of a lover of a simple God? Yeah, and so simplicity there is is really being used in, in kind of this theological, philosophical sense. I, I should be clear about that. It doesn't mean God is simple in the sense that he's somehow like of a lower register or something like that. If you, if you say that somebody is simple, that could be taken pejoratively. This is really talking about the theological doctrine that you know, technically is known as the aseity of God, that he's, um, you know, he's non-contingent. God doesn't depend like the other pagan gods. God doesn't depend on other gods to exist, um, but God exists independent of him, you know, of any other thing. He, he, is a, he, he holds or has the characteristic of simplicity. And he's therefore, and to put this in you know, Old Testament Hebrew, you say he's one God. You know, this is the this is the Shema of Deuteronomy six, and it's just named that. It's the, it's the Jewish name for this verse: Shema Israel, hear Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord is our God. Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. That statement that the Lord is one is not just about monotheism, but I would actually argue it's that He is not a divided God. In the ancient Near East, we know that if you wanted something of your pagan deity, like Baal, for instance. You could go down to the local Baal temple. You could offer a sacrifice. We have texts talking about people doing this and ask, you know, for a child. I want to have a son who can take my inheritance and run the, you know, run the business after me. And if that Baal doesn't give it to you, the Baal of, say, Hebron doesn't give you a son, you can then go down the road to Baal Peor and you can ask that Baal, right? Because Baals have geopolitical jurisdictions. But the Lord is not that one. He's singular. He's whole. He's one. If you go to Egypt, Yahweh's there and he conquers their gods. If you go to Abimelech, Yahweh's there. He conquers their gods. If you go to Moab, Yahweh's there. He conquers their gods. It's not a different Yahweh every time. So all of that's to say... God's character is one and whole in that he in the way that he loves his people. And likewise, his people should then respond and love God in a similar analogous fashion. Now we, we can't be simple in the way 
God is, obviously. We're very contingent. We're very dependent. We're very relational in a way that we depend on those relationships. But God is calling us to love Him in like manner of the way He loves us, so that when I look into myself, I don't find multiple jurisdictions. Or I think the way I put it in the book is uh, there's there are no there's no room for independent fiefdoms in the kingdom of the self. And if you think about it, that's kind of what sin is anyways, isn't it? Sin is where I set up a boundary and say, Lord, you can't be king here, right? I'll worship you on Sunday morning. I'll I'll worship you when I'm reading my Bible study. I'll worship you in my quiet time. But when it's the end of the day and the kids have been terrible and I'm stretched a millimeter wide, whatever, a mile wide and a millimeter thick, I can't be king there. I, I need... I need this other thing to be king in my life, this other desire, this other want, okay? You know, that's the temptation towards fragmentation, and that's exactly actually what we see happen as soon as Adam and Eve sin. What happens? They go and they hide. They cover themselves because fragmentation, or sin rather, always leads to division, fragmentation, and deceit. And the Lord is calling Israel out of that. He's saying, come back to me. Love me in like manner to the way that I love. And it's really a wonderful vision find there in this ancient biblical text in Deuteronomy 6. Yeah. Really good answer. Um, why is it so important that our delight in the Word of God be heartfelt, joyful, and soul-satisfying? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I have a section in the book on delighting in the law, or delighting in the Word, and I'm, I'm working out of Psalm 119, which I do recommend to everyone who wants to nurture a deeper love for the Word of God. It, it, it's a beautiful text. It's, of course, the longest psalm, which is unfortunately how it's usually known, but it's a great selection of little poems or little pieces of verse that are reflecting on the beauty and the wonderment of God's Word. One thing you notice, and Jewish scholars have even acknowledged this, you notice that as you're reading Psalm 119, he's ostensibly, the psalmist is ostensibly talking about the Torah, the instructions, the law, the Word of God, and yet as you read, you realize he's really talking about it as if it's a person. Talks about waking up at night, and there the Word is with him, counseling him and comforting him. Talks about being alone. I can remember reading this actually on my way in. We were talking about graduate work earlier off air on the metro in Washington, D.C., going into class and reading it and almost having this like picture of the Word of God sitting next to me on the train. You know, that, that's the kind of imagery that, that the psalmist is evoking in Psalm 119. And I would argue, as would other Christians uh, interpreters, that he's really intuiting something about the Word that won't be said explicitly until John 1.1, where we learn that the Word, the true revelation and expression of God is actually a person. And so, to get to your question now with that background, we have to remember that knowing God is not just about developing a theological inventory of God, but it's about actually acknowledging his role as our Savior and our Lord and loving him accordingly, delighting in him as we would if he had just reached out and pulled us out from in front of a train, right? You don't you don't turn to that person who saves your life and say, okay, now let me just get some information about you, right? You hug them, you thank them, you weep for them, you weep at their feet because you're so glad for what they've done. Or another, you know, another analogy that I use in the chapter is I talk about first seeing my wife when we were in college and I can remember distinctly the sweater she was wearing, the jeans she was wearing, the hairstyles she had. I can remember uh, very clearly, not because I'm so interested in that intellectual material, but because I delighted in her. 
And as I've grown in my knowledge of her, as I've grown in our marriage and in our relationship, and now we have five children who we enjoy and we've had all these adventures in life, I delight in her even more. And so if, if, if I were to say I love my wife and you were to say, well, tell me how, and I just listed off facts about her, you would say, I'm not sure you understand exactly what loving means. But if you saw me sort of reflect on her and delight in her, then you'd say, okay, now I, understand, I can see that you understand what it means to love somebody. So I, I think as we grow in our knowledge of God, it shouldn't just be so that I can win the argument, I can build my theological inventory. Those are also, by the way, good things. But remember that when you're reading about God, you're reading about the one who saved you, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one in whom you live and move and have your being. This isn't a dispassionate endeavor. This is a passionate, right? We're, we're seeking the God who has saved us. And so we should delight in it. I would even argue, I think, that when people talk about, you know, for instance, cold worship, what they mean is that it doesn't have any delight in it. And when people talk about arrogant Christians or arrogant believers, you know, you've met these kinds of people. What we really mean is that they're more delighted in themselves than they are in God's Word. Right. So delight actually, I think, covers a lot of, or the lack of delight rather, covers a lot of the issues that we see arise in the Christian church. Yeah, that's that's so true. What are some of the dangers of an over-intellectualized faith? Well, I mean, I, so I work in the academy. I'm at Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm around a lot of very smart people who are a lot smarter than me and have a lot more you know, intellectual wattage. I think there's a tendency among people like that in our guild uh, to think that or to place their hope in their intellectualization of the faith. I don't think actually that having a, a high intellectual appreciation of the Lord or of our faith or of theology is a bad thing in itself. What where the danger lies really is what you're neglecting for that intellectualized faith. Okay, you know, to use again the the, the, uh, you know, the analogy of a married couple. You know, knowing a lot about my wife or knowing a lot about my children for that is important and is good. I should know their birthdays. I should know when, you know what their favorite colors are and what sports they like and what they watch on TV. And yet at the same time, if that's all I do, then I'm missing out on the wholeness of that relationship. And going back to Deuteronomy 6, the Lord calls all of us, all of them, okay, my whole heart, my whole self, my whole outward effect towards loving Him. And if I'm just directing my mind or my intellect towards Him, then I'm not directing my whole self. You actually even hear this statement, and it's understood, but people say you know, it's easy to, you know, the, the distance between the mind and the heart is the longest distance known to man, or something like that, longest journey or something. Because, you know, kind of highlighting the, the tendency that we have to intellectualize a faith, but not actually find our hope and our desires there. And what's interesting in the Old Testament is that at least the Old Testament scriptures, that distinction between mind and heart is not so clearly articulated. It's really not till the New Testament that you see that distinction. In the Old Testament you know, scriptures, this idea of knowing something in your head but not really desiring it or pursuing it or yearning for it would just be called hypocrisy. You know, it's what, it's what the prophets are constantly talking about. You know, Jeremiah talks to the to the priests in the temple and says, "You trust in the temple and yet you don't love God." Uh, it doesn't help you to know everything you need to know about the temple and to be able to perfectly operate in the temple if you don't love God. So I would say that's analogous to over intellectualizing or merely intellectualizing 
eyes of your faith, where you lose the love of God for just the theological inventory. And to be honest, in my area, particularly in seminaries, but also in a Reformed tradition, we have such a great intellectual tradition to draw from, and it really is a wonderful tool for understanding the things of Scripture. Because it's our strength, it can also, uh, that we have a tendency for it also becoming the thing that we that we are proud about and actually can sometimes be a hindrance to the faith. So we need to be careful of it. Mm, yeah, I'm just reminded of the church of Ephesus. You know, they had all the, the right doctrine, but uh, Jesus says they lost love. They lost their first love. And I think right. in a lot of ways, that's what I see in the Reformed world a lot of times, to be honest. I yeah. know that's an overgeneralized statement. Maybe we could use examples too, but, you know, I just, I, I worry about the seminary students coming out. I, you know, they have a help, whole lot of knowledge even you know i deal with a lot of se- uh, seminary students that are coming out of rts or midwestern or southern you know great great students but what i want yeah. them to understand is you know how do you apply those truths you know that's yeah. that's that's where it's at yeah i uh, first first time we meet with our new students at orientation um i have a thing that i talk about but one of the parts is if, if you find yourself reading the Bible like it's a textbook, then I want you to stop taking classes at RTS, take a season of returning to the Word as God's Word, reading it devotionally, reading it worshipfully, because no one, you never want Remember, the scriptures can both enlighten you to the, to the character of God, but they can also harden the heart. Jesus says this, Isaiah says it. We want to be, be careful to read the scriptures in a way that's fitting and not in a way that's just trying to get the right answer. Mm, well said. What are your five diagnostic principles that highlight pious talesmans in the Christian life? Yeah, I... Um... So there's a chapter in the book where actually I'm dealing with that sermon by Jeremiah where he's at the temple and he's he's really pointing out the fact that the priests in the temple in the period leading right up to the Babylonian, first Babylonian deportation uh, in Judah, uh, the priests are kind of seeing the temple like a good luck charm. And they're saying, we have the temple, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. And he says, don't you know that the temple of the Lord can be removed from you if it serves God's purpose? Or if, put another way, if because of your um, lack of faith, you know, you're, you, you and the people require discipline, which is exactly what happens here. And it's what happened back in Shiloh and in, in Samuel day, and Jeremiah points that out. Remember, the, the tabernacle used to be in Shiloh, but if you go to Shiloh now, you just find an empty field where the tabernacle used to stand. And I, I think that what he's talking about there is not limited to ancient Israel. Um, this is kind of a basic tendency that we as Christian folk have, which is to make little talismans of our of whatever it is that we find our strength in apart from God. So so you could call this an idol, but as an idol, um, you need to remember it's not some, it's sometimes not as obvious as Baal or Asherah would have been as idols, right? It can be something like setting money aside for the work of God's people, okay? So there's nothing wrong with that on its face. And yet if you're doing it so that you can protect that money for yourself because you're a minister and this is basically like your retirement fund, I mean, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing with Korban, right? They're setting aside money so that they don't have to take care of their parents who are in need. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you're, you're looking righteous. Probably even believe you're being righteous, but you're actually using it as a loophole to get out of actually serving and loving the Lord. And I think we can make this out of public service. You know, having grown up in a military family, I knew a lot of military Christians who I think if you actually sat down with them, they might actually, if you got them really at an open, honest moment, you'd see that they had a lot more interest in national and public service than they did in service of the Lord. Okay? Gotta be careful about that. Public service is great, but 
it can become a talisman. You can do it with church service. You know, are you on all of the committees? Are you an usher? Do people see you up front? Do you have a name tag on Sunday morning? You know, these are the kinds of things that might become uh, false false assurances for you. And of course, as we've already talked about, I think in the reform tradition, we have to be careful about thinking that having the right answer is a substitute for you know having our true assurance of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I point out a couple of diagnostics. You know, I say a, a talisman is any belief, behavior or object that you believe gives you license or permission to sin. Okay, So that could be one. Is it, is it okay to sin because of this one particular thing that you have? Or, or maybe it's this, you know, it's any behavior, belief, or object that you believe has the power to save you apart from the power of the living God. Now, most people would say, no, God you know, is my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. He draws me alone to God. And yet, as you listen to them, you realize that their, their primary interest, though, is that they are financially secure. And you realize, okay, so where do you really think your salvation is found? Is it in God or is it in your financial security or your relational security or being accepted? You know, we have a lot of single students. Is it is your real hope in that you get married or is it in the fact that you serve a saving and living God? I also say any belief, behavior, or object that you believe gives you your true security, your true comfort, or your true convenience. And this is a hard one in the area where I serve here in Washington, D.C., because there are a lot of Christians here who I think are, are active in their churches, they're studying the Word, and yet it is in their jobs and in their vocations that they find their true security, comfort, and convenience. I actually have a friend here named Tom Terrence who works at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He said in Washington, D.C., there's a temptation for the gospel, or the Christian walk, however you want to say it, to become the religious department of the upwardly mobile life. And that's a great description a lot of people I know here in D.C., and it's in part because their jobs, their vocations have become their talisman. It's the place where they find their comfort, their security, and their convenience. And then lastly, I point out any behavior, belief, or object that dulls the conviction of sin and your need to repent and turn to the Lord in faith. So anything that you believe kind of gives you a special status before God so that you don't actually need to return to Him in repentance, that you don't actually have have to throw open those doors of fragmentation in your heart. Those, any, whatever that may be, that, that has become kind of a talisman for you, and it's replacing a true assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. So you're talking about assurance, and I can think of no greater book that talks about that than First John. So how can right. how can John's teaching help Christians understand the nature of true confession and repentance in the Christian life? Yeah, so John talks about wholeness the argument I make in the book. You find this thread throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, and wholeness is talked about in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's a tree planted by a stream of water, for instance. Okay, And the whole tree is fed by the stream, so it kind of doesn't matter what happens out in sort of the weather and the world around it. Even when the drought comes, it still bears fruit because it's wholly fed by the stream. John takes up this theme in the idea of light. And so he talks about light. Remember he says in the prologue to the gospel that Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, in First John, he highlights this idea that if you are in Christ, you are in the light. 
And if you are not in Christ, you are not of the light, but rather you're of the darkness. And the best way to eradicate the darkness is to shine the light. And we know that John is talking to a mixed audience. He's talking to people who are thoroughly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet struggle with unbelief. And he's talking to people who are fully opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're making arguments about how Jesus couldn't really be the true son of God or truly God because he had a physical body. And of course, a physical body, you know, can't, uh, you know, can't, can't really be representative of a divine Lord. This is kind of an old idea that the body or the earth, you know, the, the physical nature of the world is somehow corrupt or derived. And so he's pushing against that idea saying, when you see people speak heresy like that, when you see people make those kind of arguments, shine the light of the gospel. And when you shine the light of the gospel, the darkness whether the darkness of unbelief in your own life or the darkness and unbelief in others around you will flee. And I think that's an important idea. As we're, as we're seeking towards and repenting towards wholeness, how do we do that? Well, one way is by what you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones called preaching the gospel to yourself. And I think that's important, though. I think just preaching the gospel to yourself can't be the end of it. You also need to be preaching the gospel to others and asking them, inviting them to preach the gospel to you. We, we need the light of Christ to shine in not only the world around us, but also in our own hearts. There's an analogy in there that I that I use from growing up and again being a Navy kid, we were living on the Navy base in Charleston, South Carolina, which is actually now closed. But we lived in this, as was often the case in Navy bases, we lived in this huge old building that was actually an office building that had become you know these these officers' quarters, and they were it was divided into multiple quarters. But it was this old hundred year old building, and we were there right next to the Cooper River in Charleston, South Carolina, the Southern Low Country. And this building, this old building, just had the worst roach problem that I that you can imagine. And I can remember being a kid there and having to go downstairs to the kitchen to get like a snack in the middle of the night, and having to creep into this kitchen and the lights, which was like halfway into the kitchen, so you had to walk into the dark dark room and flip on that light knowing full well as soon as you flip on the light you know what are you going to see you see a hundred little roaches or as they called them their palmetto bugs you know which is always seems like a, a, a cruel euphemism to me but you'll see you know a hundred palmetto bugs scattering into the into the corners of the room you know that's what john is saying the gospel does you show up in the darkness of this world and you shine the gospel when you're wrestling with unbelief be reminded of the gospel shine the light of the gospel. Don't keep it under a bushel. I love that song because it seems like the singer is trying to convince himself not to keep it under a bushel. Don't keep it under a bushel. No. No, I'm not going to do it. You know, and, and the gospel has that power, and that's a part of the wholeness that we have in God, that when we shine the truth about God and his character as it's revealed in Jesus Christ, the salvation that he has won for us all, the darkness does scatter. And you can see this happen even in public events. Like, you know, I remember the uh, the, the shooting at that church in Charleston, the Mother AME Church, downtown Charleston, and the families of the victims standing up in the same week the shooting took place when this young, angry man took the lives of their loved ones. And go back and read some of those accounts where these believers reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for them now in this moment of horror, tragedy. How they stood up there and they talked of words of forgiveness. 
they talked about grace and mercy. It's amazing how in this dark moment, a dark moment for the nation, how the light of the gospel shone forth and for a moment the darkness dissipated. So I think John's image there of light is really a beautiful thing and it's it's a helpful, vivid analogy for us to think about when we're thinking about wholeness in our own lives. Mm. Wonderful, brother. Um, so there's a lot that as we just wrap up this conversation that we haven't talked about in regards to your book. And just as uh, we conclude our this interview and as listeners uh, begin to go pick up your book, can you give us some takeaways that you hope readers will take away as or li- as listeners pick up your book as they go read your book? Uh, what what takeaways do you have for them? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, uh, we've covered a lot of them here. I, I would just encourage people, as you're thinking about the, your salvation in Christ, look for your heart to be changed. Look for your outlook in life to be changed. Notice, you know, notice that it's happening. Give thanks to God for it. When you notice you hold yourself holding different opinions and views of the world than you did before, give thanks. That's the work of God in you. And notice how the, this, you know, this, your outward strength, your outward effect in the world can both be formed by your love of God and is being formed by your love of God. Note, note both the being and the becoming. It's remarkable to sit down and don't just think about, you know, am I actually giving 10% of my income every month? But think about everything you do. How about your neighborly relationships? How about your your create your creative capacity? How are you using this to the glory of God and to the benefit of His people, the church? I'd resist the temptation. Uh, it's another idea, kind of related to this. Resist the temptation to domesticate your faith, to make it be just about sort of private personal concerns and recognize that your faith has outward effect in the world and the public space and all of your relationships. I think Christians spend a lot of time trying to think about how to be Christians in a way that is acceptable to the world around them. And I think that's I think that's an important thing. I mean, I think the Lord calls us to not in- increase the offense of the gospel. But remember, the gospel is already offensive. And even when Jesus preached the gospel, you look at John 6, where he says, you must eat of my flesh or drink of my blood. It says everybody left. Everybody said that this is crazy. Only the disciples were left. And Jesus asked them, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Think about that. Jesus himself is preaching the gospel and everyone thinks he's strange. And now reflect on the fact that throughout the scripture, the Lord has been attuned to the widow the orphan, the stranger, the sojourner. The Lord has picks Israel because they're the least of the nations, not because they're the greatest. Who does he pick? Jesus, a man of sorrows, and the way that he expre- gives expression to himself, the second person of the Trinity. Paul says there aren't many wise who are going to be called after the gospel. Remember that if we're trying to think about how do we give expression to our love of God and the world around us, it might just be by identifying with those who are the most in need. Stop worrying about how acceptable we are and actually go out and find those who have been disenfranchised, like the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and come alongside them and serve them. That's a wonderful expression of your faith and your love of God in the world around you. And then lastly, I would say this. I mean, one of the big points here for me is, uh, particularly someone who's benefited so much from the Puritan tradition, when we think about repentance, which is what the Puritan tradition is so great at, remember that this is not merely a sorrowful event. There There is sorrow in repentance. There is regret and sorrow over the sins of our lives. But it's sorrow unto life, right? It is hope and confidence in who Jesus is. We come in, I think sometimes we think about coming before the throne in repentance as kind of like coming in and saying, come on, Jesus, just give me one more chance, you know, and, and yet 
the way it's actually presented in the Gospels is that when we walk in, we walk in fully accepted as those who have been united with Christ. God the Father receives us as if he is receiving his Son. And so we should go in to repentance, yes, with sorrow about our acts, but also with a huge amount of hope and confidence. And I would add to that, asking God to secure for us more repentance. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, uh, verse uh, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's a hurtful way in me. Right? You lead me in your everlasting way. I think sometimes Christians live their lives constantly introspecting about whether you know about their own personal failures and the psalmist says leave it to the spirit okay your heart will deceive you let the spirit draw these things out and show them to you and then ask the spirit to leave you and lead you in the everlasting way uh, repentance should be unto hope it should be unto joy and unto and unto confidence for those who have been made whole in Jesus Christ and so that's really the main message of the book i want people to be encouraged in it and see really the grand vision to which we've been called in Christ Jesus well um i i enjoyed the book my friend and um enjoyed this conversation you've given a lot of great answers very helpful uh, God you. glorifying and so thank you for your work brother thank you it's a joy it's been great talking to you thank you brother praise the Lord thank you so much for listening we hope that you were encouraged by today's episode don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast for more uplifting and thought provoking content please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.